The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Do you wish to place another bet, sir? No, no, I guess not. Have you tried 22 tonight? I said 22. Marquons les jeux, mesdames et messieurs. Les jeux sont faits. La partie continue. Marquons les jeux. Fini. 22. Noir, père et passe. 22. Leave it there. Marquons les jeux, mesdames et messieurs. Les jeux sont faits. Marquons les jeux. La partie continue. Marquons les jeux. Les jeux sont faits. Rien ne va plus. 22 you're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 9th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Mary Lou Ambrosio. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today. It's going to be a hot one, I think. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation. Or as always, email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today we have a very special guest in our studio, one who is not a stranger to our show, that's for sure. He was just on not too many weeks ago and is back again today, actually because of some nasty things that have been said about him in the public here and there. I've already come to her defense, Salim Mansour. Welcome. Thank you, Bob. And of course, those... Those who don't know, uh, Salim is professor of political science here at the University of Western Ontario, also author of Delectable Lie, a Liberal Repudiation, repudiation rather, of Multiculturalism. And um, Salim, I guess uh, you've been accused by some of the leaders of the Muslim community here in, this, in the city of maybe stirring up a little bit of trouble. Is, is that how you feel, what you're doing? <laughs> No, I don't think I was uh, uh, in any way, what is it, stirring up trouble? Well, you know, um. it's, it's interesting because I'm, of course, referring to some comments that were made on another radio station in town, namely CJBKAM on Andy Utman's show, who has, to his credit, been giving a great deal of time to this very issue. Um, of course, this was all precipitated because of all the recent um, terrorist activity we've been exposed to in the news. Not one, not two, not three, but four or five and six incidents, many of them quite recently. And uh, Dr. Al Qasim was on the air and he called in and, he, and I have to quote what he said about you so to you know, put this whole thing in context. Good. So here's what he said, and I have quoted this verbatim. And he said this, and by the way, we will be posting 
the originals of all these clips to our site after this show is posted as well, so people can hear all the original source material for themselves. And he said, and I quote, It makes me sad that I'm being targeted, and this is um, Dr. Munir Al-Qasim, uh, that I'm being targeted as part of the problem instead of being asked to join the team that will find a solution. Let us work together and not get emotional about it and not really insist that the Muslim community in London is an incubator of terrorists as people like Sal Salim Mansour do. The reality is, Salim Mansour ran for federal election a few years back and he ran to the Muslim community for support. When he did not find the right support that he needed, immediately he turned against the Muslim community, and now nothing that the Muslims do is really good for him. This is not right. This is not academic. I used to be an academic and continue to be. For 10 years, I taught at Western. And I insist that when an academic speaks on issues as sensitive as this, that he does not turn into somebody who will plant fear in the hearts of people. If he is bitter about the level of support from the Muslim community, he shouldn't start to point fingers at them. This is not right. Would we be happy if a lunatic, without thinking, uh, will come and do something at the London Muslim Mosque, and then there will be victims, and there will be blood, and there will be, you know, this will not serve anybody. I know that the police chief has sent police and undercover to protect the community. We don't need to lose those resources in order to give that protection. Let us all protect ourselves, work together, and not propagate fear for no reason. Well, wow, I, I was shocked when I heard that. And I called now, in. Uh, Bob, you yeah. mentioned that uh, you didn't actually, you weren't provided with a, a chance to respond to that at all. Um, I, I well, you only heard the, these comments the first time yesterday. Yeah, or the day so you didn't even you? know that it was being discussed, or uh, that's correct. I I, I only got to uh, hear these comments uh, as a result of uh, uh, the tape, uh, the podcast from uh, CGBK. But um, uh, w what am I supposed to do here? Take uh, Mr. Munir El Qasem apart, or <laughs> which which would not be very difficult at all. I mean, here's here's a man, it, and and when you read that to me and what I heard, is is a very sad and pathetic human being. You know, uh, the man claims to be the representative of the Muslim community, as if the Muslim community is a monolith, and the Muslim world is a monolith. You know, there's 1.6 billion Muslim around the world. Uh, Muslim community in London is somewhere around about, you know, 25,000 people, uh, Muslims of uh, different ethnic backgrounds. And for Mr. Munir Al-Qasim to speak in a singular term, Muslim community, that he represents all of them, is utter nonsense, you know. And then and then the issue that he raises, this is what, what it is, instead of, you know, and, and, and the, the problem is that he cannot make the admission. So instead of saying, you know, here's a problem, he's saying, let's move on. There's no problem. And then to basically smear the people who are raising difficult issues, as I am myself raising it. And it is not simply about the Muslim community in London. It is about the general situation of what is going on in the heart of the Muslim world, that there's a deep Problem. That's the problem. Yeah. It's a, this is a universal, a worldwide issue. That's right. Uh, so which it, London? Yeah. And so instead of addressing the points you raised, he yeah. goes to a personal <laughs> issue. Right. And and you know, I mean, what what relevance does 
2000 election yeah. in which I was a uh, candidate for the Conservative for the Canadian Alliance at that time has for 2013 or 9-11. I mean, the world flipped on 9-11. Yes, and the last election was before that. That's right. And yeah. as you mentioned, both you and Robert Vaughn, our usual co-host here, was, right. were also candidates for the same party. Right. And, um, you know, I, when I when I called Andy Utman myself, I, I, I called this a complete ad hominem attack against yes. you, because it really had little to do Pre with what you were saying. Precisely. I mean, what has what has 2000 election, the world changed, the world flipped, you know. Um, I didn't get the support of the entire Muslim community. See, entire, because the Muslims are not one. There are many Muslims who, who supported me, and they were Muslim. I would now describe them as the mosque community, of which uh, Munir al-Qasim is the leader. So there's a mosque community and a mosque elder. And this community, that is the mosque community, again, I emphasize, their leadership has not changed in terms of its profile, in terms of its ideology, in terms of their politics vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim world in the past 15 and more years, 20 years. I mean, I have been uh, attending the mosque uh, uh, since I have been in London. I was attending the mosque wherever I have been. Now, after 9-11, I have not been attending because the mosque uh, community, as I have pointed out, out, and Munir al-Qasim is, in that sense, the leader of the mosque community, not of the Muslims, um, are basically Islamists. They are the supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood and, and, and all the related organizations uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood. They are the offshore plant you might say, of the multinational group that is the Muslim so Brotherhood. Would you say then that contrib that's part of the reason they resort to ad hominem, ad hominem attacks with you because in order to refute what you say, precisely they have to deny who they are. Precisely the be yeah. be because they cannot deal with the issue because to deal with the issue would be to say where do they stand right. in relationship to 9-11, in relationship to the global jihad, in relationship to the constant denunciation and abuse directed at non-Muslims, the infidels, the Jews, Israel, Zionism, they cannot, they cannot confront those arguments and so they talk in platitudes and Munir al-Qasim is very good in talking in platitudes. That's the way to skirt the issue and people who are not going to challenge him, that is the media, he can talk it over their head and that's what's happening. Now it's interesting you know, uh, Al Qasim is always talking about working together, but not being specific about working together at what. And this concerned me greatly. He actually, in, in trying to figure out what he is about and what he's thinking about, I have another quote here from the same broadcast. And um, by the way, this was on um, April 23rd that this broadcast took place. And this is uh, Munir Al Qasim talking about himself. Okay, and he speaks of himself in the third person, which I thought was a little odd, so that's why I had to make that a point. And he, and he said, Munir al-Qasim is not trying to cover up for the problem. Munir al-Qasim is saying, let's work together on the front line. Munir al-Qasim is not denying that there is a problem, and that those elements who are angry because they were driven to this feeling because of what's happened. 
And I'm not trying to justify their heinous crimes, but the reality is that there are young elements who are driven to these acts because of the feelings, of the feeling that the United States of America and all its allies did what they did in Iraq and Afghanistan and many other parts of the world, and they are resorting to taking the law into their own hands. Munir al-Qasim and all the Muslim community should come together with everyone else and say that we should not perceive of this as a cover-up, but a call to push emotion aside, so let's work together. And he says, and I'll make a promise on the air that if there would be someone or a group of people who have practical suggestions and to deal with the problem, I'll be the first one to work with my colleagues who are the leaders of the Muslim community in London and outside because I am all over Canada and the States. Interesting for a London leader to be doing that. I can work with them in order for us to bring a solution together rather than saying as a treatment for this cancer, let's cut off the sliver and throw it out of the body. We cannot do that. We've got to realize that we are in this together. Now, end quote. If I read that correctly, he's saying we shouldn't do anything about these terrorists. In fact, we should embrace them and keep them among us? Am I reading that right? You know, when he says, you know, Rather than saying, as a treatment for this cancer, let's cut off the sliver and throw it out of the body. I mean, that's what we do to cancer. You cut, the, you cut that cancerous portion out and you throw it out. That's your only chance of survival. Okay. So, as an analogy, I thought it was terrible. <laughs> now, Salim, was it Munir Al-Qasem, or uh, uh, I can't remember who it was, that wrote an article after about, Afghanistan, about the, the Buddha's statues? Again, still at that time, blaming Westerners for what was happening. Well, the entire record of Munir Qasim is part of the uh, record of Muslim Brotherhood. So it's of the, Hamas, same, of, the same language. Yeah. And what he's engaged is in dissembling. He's engaged in, you know, trying to cover up what is the record of this man uh, throughout uh, the period before and after 9-11. I mean, uh, you are absolutely right. So he defends the Taliban. He, in fact, uh, attacked people who questioned what the Taliban had done in terms of destroying the Buddha statues in Bamiyan. You know, these are all on public record. Yes. You know, it is on public record that he is a man who embraced Louis Farrakhan, who traveled to Chicago to speak in glorious terms about Louis Farrakhan, the man who calls the Jewish religion a gutter religion. Uh, he's a man who has been at the very high-level appointment in the World Islamic Call Society, which was the arm of the global jihad of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. And he was traveling back and forth to Libya, and these are all on public record. And the WICS had its, uh, right? its one of it. As I said, these, yeah. are, uh, these are branch plants, so yeah. it had one major office in London Incredible. of which he is a member and and all of this was brought to the front after 9-11 yes. when uh, uh, the WICS's uh, uh, charity status was revoked by uh, the Canada Revenue Agency he's a member of the Muslim Association of Canada mm. of, of the World Assembly of Muslim Youth all these are Saudi funded uh, organization that preaches the language of jihad he himself has spoken the language of jihad in a book if you have the time here, in a book uh, by Stephen Emerson, who had been tracking uh, jihad in America and wrote a book called Jihad in America that was published in 2002. Um, almost a decade before that, Stephen Emerson had uh, done a documentary that won all sorts of awards about jihad in America. That was after the first World Trade bombing. And now Stephen Emerson 
who meticulously uh, tracked down all the various organizations in America and United States and Canada that are involved in preaching jihad pointed out that there was a base here in London Incredible. and he named Munir al-Qasim and, yeah. and, and quoted Munir al-Qasim glorifying jihad as the cult of death as, as something that people seek martyrdom because they love al-akhirah which is the life in the next world more than the life in this world yeah and 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 this is a man who's been a, a pr working at the university and also a, a, a chaplain for the london police all, all along all along all along and so this is the thing that 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 the dots are all over there but but the man has not you know nobody has asked him in public to explain his position you know so when people like myself or when Tariq fatah or stephen emerson and others have raised the issue not only about munir al-qasim but about people like him yes. right across north america and that's the point that we were making when young people sitting in the mosque and sitting in these very uh, mosque-related club like the Muslim Association of Canada, the World Assembly Muslim Youth, they're listening to this sort of discourse where, you know, the whole argument of jihad, of support for all the various causes in which the jihadis are operating across the Muslim world, Kashmir, Palestine, of course, preeminently, Somalia, North Africa, Afghanistan, Pakistan, you know, and to support these brothers, quote-unquote, who are putting their lives on the line, you know, then this is the call, this is the idea that is percolating in an environment, which is the mosque environment, where these young impressionable kids mm -hmm. are growing up. And there is going to be statistically a portion of these young kids who are going to absorb these ideas and then subsequently act upon them. And we are not surprised. That's the radicalization that is taking place. That's what we have been talking about. There is a radicalization taking place. And the London story was not the only story. Well, And, and this working together thing, I, uh, the Justin, yeah. Justin Trudeau-esque third-party references well, aside, what does he mean by that? I, well, it sounds like every socialist communist of every culture. They always want to work together. Sounds like Dalton McGinty, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. Uh, you're not the only one say, saying these kinds of things, and and you're not alone anymore in, in arguing your point. We're going to go to a, a, an audio bite now. Did you want to say anything about this one, Rahil Raza, before we no, go into it, or should we just go into yep. it? This was actually aired on Sun News on April 23rd, featuring Rahil Raza, speaking of a meeting she was at, apparently, after that And we should just say that Rahil and Salim are president and vice president uh -huh. of the group Muslims Facing Tomorrow, which was formed exactly for this reason. Excellent. So uh, we'll hear from that and we'll return right after this. Joining me now live in studio and you're nodding is Raheel Raza. She's the president of the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow. I want to talk to you first off about yesterday, everything that happened yesterday. And we had the briefing, of course, live on, on our network here and we were watching it very closely. And we hear that beforehand, RCMP actually met with members of the Muslim community uh, in a form of community briefing. Yes. You were part of this. I was. Yes. Okay. Tell us about it. Well, um, it was a meeting of leaders and mostly in the room were imams of all the different mosques and there were three other women. 
Uh, there was myself and a gentleman who identified himself as being Buddhist, so I don't know how he was there, but he must be a community leader. So the RCMP then presented the case. As they said this is what is going to be happening in a little while. We have this press release. These two guys have been apprehended. And then they said, is there any, are there any questions? And the slew of questions at them, or the response, was bordering, bordering on hostility in the sense that it was all about how is this going to look on us. It was about optics and semantics and mm. the words we use. Uh, you know, this is going to create Islamophobia time and time again to the point where I was feeling rather sick to my stomach. And so not once did any one of them say thank you. So I felt it important to do that myself to say thank you. I'm a proud Canadian today. You have thwarted an attempt on our security and freedoms. But the defense mechanism set in immediately. It was this knee-jerk reaction that they are not Muslim. Well, I'm sorry, but they are. And they're saying it, they're not Muslim, it doesn't help. And that's not the point. The point is that we have a problem. There is a global jihad. You have to connect the dots with what has happened in Boston, what has happened in London, today in Spain, and this. And we needed actually that opportunity to ask the right questions and talk about solutions. But this did not happen. based on, and you're, you're describing, and you're painting a pretty graphic picture of yes. what went on in this briefing, are RCMP officers, is law enforcement in this country being intimidated, being bullied by members of the Muslim community, by religious leaders? From what I saw yesterday for the first time, and I was in shock at this, yes. They, I could see them slowly shrinking sort of back into their uniforms and being apologetic and, you know, finding them their backs up against the wall. And I have to tell you, I really felt for them. And they're doing their job. It is not their job to do public relations for the community. Then one of the people in the room even suggested to them that you should not use the word Islam or Muslim in the press release. And you must make sure that you speak about the fact But these that are facts. But these are facts, and this is not the job of the RCMP, our law enforcement agencies. I understood for the first time in 25 years what we are up against. And therefore, this is fertile breeding ground for the global, global jihad. This is fertile breeding ground, and this is not the first time I've said this. When I said this a few years ago, I was called a fear monger. But the grassroots problem is that there is a global jihad, that there is a problem within the Muslim communities, and we have to acknowledge it and stand up and take action. Yes, fearmonger. Is that what you are, Salim? That's what you were called to. <laughs> Sounds like a common label. Well, uh, are, 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 is this about fear? Do we is, is that even on the on your agenda? Are you, are you, or is there a little bit of fear required to wake us up? I don't know. It's almost I don't know if that's even a legitimate complaint. But here's the irony. I mean, they, they, these people have constructed the narrative about Islamophobe and that they are all victims. That means they are not responsible for anything that is being done to them. Victims. Yeah, they, right. they are the victims and, and Islamophobe. The irony is that since the world of 9-11, there's every reason for non-Muslim to be concerned and fearful about that segment of the Muslim population.
mind you, that segment, that segment is not a very large segment, I would say. It is somewhere, I mean, this is, uh, these have been tracked down and discussed at great length. The Pew Research uh, has come up with a number saying that it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of the population. But 10 and 15% of a global population of 1.6 billion runs into hundreds of millions, you know. And and that 10 to 15% is here, right here in London. It is here in Toronto. It is here in, you know, Montreal and Quebec City and, and, and BC and so on and so forth and in Boston. And so we have to talk about that. So when Mr. Munir Al-Qasim keeps talking about solution, he can only be helpful in making the be part of the solution when he steps forward and instead of engaging in denial, publicly, publicly condemn openly, without any ambiguity, the jihadi politics of yes, the Muslim Brotherhood. Yes, as Raheel did, and That's as you right. often do. Uh, that, 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 you know, that this is what he was talking about, yes. that he was engaged with, you know, and that he publicly renounces it. And then he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I was embracing Louis Farah Khan. I'm sorry that I was embracing the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm sorry that I was part of the World Islamic Call Society distributing funds from, from Muammar Gaddafi's petrodollars and Saudi petrodollars and Emirate petrodollars dollar to the jihadi organizations across the country he is he's not alone it is it is he is part of a group of people then only then people whether muslims or non-muslim that is muslims who are against such politics and i think it is very useful the point that was made on your show a few sessions ago about the distinction to be made between Muslims and Islamists or or, yes. or Islamists and non-Islamist Muslims, that this is a conflict between theocrats and anti-theocrats. That's and the correct. Muslim world is split between that. You know, the theocrats are the ones who are waging the war. They're waging the war against the modern world. They're waging the war against uh, uh, minorities in the Muslim world, the Christians and Hindus. And, you know, the Jews have been all pushed out from uh, wherever they were in the Middle East and the Arab countries against you know, people with different sexual backgrounds, uh, war against the women, uh, war against secularists, against liberals, against free thinkers, against modern people. This is the war that the theocrats are raging. I mean, this is what happened in the revolution that brought uh, Khomeini to power. Mm-hmm. This is what has now brought the the Muslim Brotherhood to power in Egypt. This is what has brought the uh, people in Libya and in Tunisia. And the irony is that the West do not understand how to understand the struggle and is ironically in full embrace of the theocrats in Saudi Arabia and now with the Muslim Brotherhood and right here in our community the Mm -hmm. police the politicians they're all in embrace of the theocrats and trying to give the theocrats full protection hence giving someone like Qasem job as police chaplain absolutely a high profile yeah. but, uh, but but you see again that is not at all difficult to explain if you have an or uh, uh, 10 people uh, um, made up into an organization mm-hmm. then everybody will run to that organization right, for, for 10 comment. people yeah. but sure. if there are 10 individual people and they're not organized they're 10 individual with 10 different opinions right. nobody was going to go, run run to them so the the, the mosque community is organized you know I said there's about 20 25,000 Muslims in London uh, you go on any Friday and you will you can add up the number in the two mosques you will find about 1500 people you know at the best 700 in this one 700 in South Ontario. That tells you that a huge chunk, maybe 90%, are not regular attendees to the mosque. Right. 
And this is what we were saying. I know it was Paul McKeever brought up the whole thing between right. theocracy and democracy. And that I think we'll, we're going to expand into that very issue for the second half of the show. Um, and, you know, we have another sort of first-hand witness coming up here with this next audio bite we have. Mary Lou, I know you wanted to say something about um, Laura Logan, who is right. a CBS News correspondent. She's a and we'll be hearing a bit from her over the balance of the show and, right. and her, her experience is something else. Incredible. Yeah, she was actually an embedded reporter in, in Iraq, and she covered the war in Afghanistan. And you remember, she was the reporter that was brutally raped and assaulted by a mob <clears throat> of Egyptian men while covering the protests in Tahrir Square. Shocking. Um, but what's very interesting is despite those assaults on, on Western reporters, the media didn't want to tell that story. They wanted to stick to the narrative about this exciting liberation movement in Egypt, which, mm -hmm. meanwhile, was uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was in the background. So here we go again, missing the real story. Um, but uh, Laura Logan gave this keynote lecture at uh, a Better Government Association luncheon in which she discusses the critical role that the press has in truthfully and, re and faithfully reporting the facts. So regardless of the politics, mm -hmm. and that's what we're going to be hearing from her. And this was actually recorded, I understand, in October of 2012. Correct. Is that correct? Yep. Okay, we're going to go to a break for our bottom of the hour, and when we return, our conversation with Salim Mansour will continue. There's been a narrative coming out of Washington over the last few years, many of it driven by Pakistani lobbying money and um, by Taliban apologists. One of my favorite things to read about is how the Taliban today is so unlike the Taliban of 2001. There are just a more moderate, gentler, kinder Taliban who just can't wait to see women in the workplace occupying you know, an equal role in society. and you know, great economic prosperity for all of Afghanistan and don't really want to take us back 3,000 years into that terrible, terrible place that I witnessed in 2001 when I went with the Afghan soldiers who retook Kabul from the Taliban. You know, it's such uh, nonsense. And every now and then you'll read someone in a British paper, someone in an American paper, someone saying to you that they've been talking to the Taliban and Taliban wanted to go to peace talks and they, they you know, they're, they're ready to renounce their links with al-Qaeda. There's really the, the theory is if you pack up and go home from Afghanistan, the problem is over. The Taliban just want their country back. They've got no problem with you. And, and we can just, we can stop wasting billions of dollars and, and American lives in Afghanistan. And we can turn our backs on this, um, this war that has really been a waste of our time. That's amazing to me that that's where we are today. Because, I, I mean, not only do I remember the promises that were made, which is fine, you don't want to keep your promises, that's, that's, that's politics, I guess. But <laughs> to think that there's any similarity between this and Vietnam is ridiculous. The Viet Cong didn't care what you did when you went back to America. The Viet Cong weren't fighting for an Islamic caliphate. The Viet Cong didn't have a global struggle. And it's amazing to me that we constantly ignore what Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and Haqqani and all these groups tell us every day in their own newspapers, in their own statements. They share something. They share an idea. Al-Qaeda is not an organization. You don't have to have a card, a membership card or a badge or something that we recognize in our society. Something that the FBI can say, okay, I know what that is. I'm going to hold you responsible for what you did in Libya and we're going to put you on trial in America. This is terrorism. It's a completely and utterly different fight from anything we have faced in our history. And that's why we chose to do this story.
Because what's the one thing about Afghanistan that's going to come home to haunt us? What we have done there for the last 11 years, what we, our role in the Middle East, our role across the world, our way of life is under attack. And if you think that's government propaganda, if you think that's nonsense, if you think that's warmongering, you're not listening to what the people who are fighting you say about this fight. In your arrogance, you think you write the script, but you don't. There's two sides, and we don't dictate the terms. In fact, after 11 years of war in Afghanistan, where we're surrendering, rushing for the exits as fast as we can, not only do we not dictate the terms, but we have less power to dictate anything on the world stage. And we now face an enemy that former U.S. Ambassador Ryan Crocker, who, whose interview didn't make this piece, but we did talk to him, and, and he said, we've killed all the slow and stupid ones. The ones that are left are more committed, and they didn't become any kinder or gentler in the last 11 years. And he's absolutely right. I want to go. Why? Doesn't it drive you crazy just to think of them together? Maybe a little. So why are you going? I mean, you can do the alley cat at home. I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with actually seeing them get married. You know, maybe that's the only way I'll believe it's, it's really over. You know, like, like if a tree falls in the forest. Huh? You know, like if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it. How do you know it made a sound? Oh, what kind of tree? Doesn't matter what kind of tree. Sure it does. What kind of tree doesn't make a sound? Forget it. Well, I mean, you know, if it was like a small bush or uh, some ferns. Look, let, let's just drop it, okay? Fine, fine, you started it. Hello, is, is Dana there? Moss, you wouldn't hear. Are you sure you want to go in there? I mean, you don't have to have the tree fall on you to know that it made a sound. <laughs> don't, don't have to have the tree fall on you to know it made a sound, but well, apparently we <clears throat> do. <laughs> well, I'm shocked, Bob, I tell you, shocked. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. A Muslim, a Jew, and a Roman Catholic sit on a stage together to discuss their shared concerns about human rights commissions and hate speech laws. This sounds like the start of a bad joke, but it refers to an event held in London back in April of 2009, which was the beginning of an awareness for some of us that the London Free Press was, wasn't uh, faithfully and factually reporting the news in London. Now, I mean London, Ontario, by the way, mm -hmm. not London, England, where in places like Tower Hamlets, one might expect the Islamization process to be well advanced back to the Stone Age. But the many experiences a few of us have had with the London Free Press and their reluctance to always report the facts when it comes to issues related to Islam have often had me wondering, if a tree falls in the forest city and the Free Press doesn't report it, did it really fall? Well, it's all fun and games until someone loses a life, and it appears after many years of ignoring what's happening in the city, a couple of young lives have been lost in Algeria. So we need to look at the local media's failure. 
to tell Londoners what's been going on behind closed doors at mosques and ask whether this failure may have contributed to the problem. Our guest in, stud- in studio, Salim Mansour, was, of course, the Muslim at that 2009 event referred to earlier, which almost didn't take place because London Free Press reporter Randy Richmond did his level best to smear co-panelist Kathy Shadel as a bigoted Islamophobe in an article which preceded the event. The full story of the Free Press's efforts to sabotage the event before it even took place was fully covered by Just Right at the time, and the details can be found in Just Right show number 99. For another of the many examples of questionable Free Press editorial decisions, we need to go back to September 2010, when they spiked longtime columnist Rory Leishman's article entitled, Media Neglect Sources of Homegrown Islamist Extremism. Pretty story, obvious right there. Isn't pretty it, obvious, that? isn't it? You guys also covered that. Yes. He that was, was way back yeah, in September 2010. Um, and uh, you have to ask, ha- had we exposed the problem early enough? Uh, could this have averted the most recent tragedies? Um, so, you know, maybe if the media had been paying attention to people like Salim, Londoners wouldn't have been shocked to uh, hear the news of those young men traveling to Algeria. Would you agree, Salim, that if the media had been paying attention to people like you, Tarek, Rahil, people who know the consequences of the media's failure to report the truth and ask the tough questions, um, you know, if they had been willing to write about these subjects in a factual and informative manner, would you agree there would have been no shock at this turn of events in London? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the media, the mainstream media, has a narrative that it it has been uh, 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 selling and and spinning uh, from before 9/11 to after 9/11 and on to right now, and and the core issue of that narrative is we are a multicultural country, you know. So that's their motivation. They're just so married to that concept and anything else that disputes it is just not seen. That is right. And and so anything that diminishes or underscores or undermines that narrative is going to be censored out, you know, and we can find many dots, you know. You have pointed out the question of uh, Rory Leishman column being spiked, the 2009 event. Repeatedly my columns would not be published. I mean, I, I was writing a weekly column for almost 15 years and some of them, or a great many of them were not published in the London Free Press though I was a, a nationally syndicated columnist for the Sun Media the and QMI. of course we wouldn't know about that you would know about it, you would have to find this column in other uh, Sun papers and I was told quite frankly by a number of editors that you know, there was immense pressure from quote unquote the Muslim community. That is the Muslim community which Munir al-Qasim mm-hmm. represents. Yes. The mosque community. The yes. mosque community. Not to publish me or not right. to publish Rory Leishman or not to get into any of these discussion. Uh, let, let me point out furthermore, I mean, this is not simply the London Free Press. This mm-hmm. is the global yes. problem. This is not the American problem. Right. This is the problem with Toronto Star and Globe and Mail and CBC. Yeah. The fact that CBC broke the story on, on the Canadian connection uh, was something that could not be ignored because other media yes. outlets had talked about it. But you were referring to um, the Arab Spring. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, big big name 
people like Thomas Friedman of New York Times and others were all singing hallelujah about Arab Spring leading up to from 2010-2011 and, and they were pointing out that what, what is happening is somehow a, a repeat of what happened in Eastern Europe with the collapse mm-hmm. of, of communism and the freedom that came in Eastern Europe with, uh, with uh, the rise of democracy the tearing down of the Berlin Wall but the Arab Spring... Uh, People like myself, I have been writing all along that Arab Spring was a complete hoax that under the the uh, uh, argument of democracy and the veil of democracy, that is a legitimate thing. It was a democratic struggle. But under that veil of democracy, the people who are going to take power, the Muslim Brotherhood, that is the theocrats, they're not interested in democracy. They're interested in using democracy for the purpose of their seizing power and for their objective to create a theocratic society based upon Sharia. Now the Muslim world might, a large number of people might want that, but there are also a large number of people who don't want that and that is exactly where the fight is taking place. Well, and Salim, you could you know, how how do we help people identify a legitimate versus an illegitimate uh, movement like that and because presumably, I remember in uh, was it in uh, Iran in 2009 the Green Movement that was something that should have been supported. That was for real. But that opportunity was missed. Well, w- w- one way to, to guarantee uh, or, or at least to come close to understanding what's happening is to have a free media where many voices are heard over a consistent mm-hmm. basis. And then you can identify who are the players, who are the people. Are we hearing the voices from the women? Are we hearing the voices of the minorities, uh, say, in Egypt, the Christian community, right. or in Syria, point. or in Iraq, or in Pakistan? Are we hearing them speaking out? What we are hearing is the overwhelming decibel sound of the mosque community to which Munir al-Qasim belongs. And they are using the argument of democracy, in this case Munir al-Qasim using the argument of, you know, we have a problem, we let's solve the problem. Well, Mr. Qasim, you you are the problem because, you know, other voices have not been heard and we can identify you. And now the alternate media has come about and the strength of the alternate media that has come about is growing even though mainstream stream media want to censor it the alternate media is the bloggers it's the radio shows like this one yeah. uh, that is increasing in intensity yeah. and it is as a result of the alternate media that eventually people are hearing the story i mean you know the biggest <laughs> noise of the alternate media was how the mainstream media tried to uh, get george bush uh, uh, of indicted or, or, or finished during that famous episode of Dan Rather, mm. you know, if your memory goes back to it. Uh, and then it was the alternate media that pointed out that Dan Rather was running a hoax. Mm-hmm. And Dan Rather was a <coughs> CBS main <coughs> man. So the alternate media is coming around. It'll take time. But the credibility of the mainstream media is pretty much shattered. Now, just to re- emphasize <coughs> that one point you make, because it's a very good one, that people should observe carefully and note are the uh, usual marginalized voices able to speak if they are then perhaps it's a genuine movement if it's not if they aren't then it's something else well exactly i mean why is it the mainstream media that has given mr al qasim so much time because he's the imam of the mosque well they have given him time because they're the imam of the mosque but did they ask him 
Mr. El Qasim, what is your position that was publicly stated in 2002, yes. 2003, to 2001 on the Taliban, on the support for the Taliban, right. on the glorification of the Taliban? These are all publicly public record. You know, your denunciation of those people like Salim Mansour, who who were at basically pointing out that Taliban is nothing but the Khmer Rouge of the of, of, of the Muslim world. What is your position now, Mr. Yeah. Al-Qasim? Can we know about it? What is your position, you know, on your relationship with the World Islamic Council? Can we know about it? What is your position on Mr. Louis Farrakhan that you embrace and that you glorified? What is, you know, can we know about it? Now, unless those questions are asked, Mr. Al-Qasim has been given a free ride. Right. And how will the public know? Mm-hmm. Precisely, you know, and, and he's, Tarek Fattah said something that I found quite disturbing, and he said that on CJBK as well, and I know that you, you teach here at Western, and he said, and I quote, I know what's happening in London in the campus community there. It's a hotbed of Islamic radicalism. The same people who push it are the same people who come on TV and say, oh, we don't know where this came from. And then he said, oh, come on, they can fool a bunch of bleeding-heart white liberals and academics, but some of us are Muslim and we know what's happening. Campus and high school prayer rooms are the headquarters of radical Muslim ideology. Is that true? Um, more or less it is true, because the campus uh, student movements, uh, whether it is here at Weston or whether it is at any university across Canada and United States, is dominated by the Muslims, Muslim Student Association. But aren't aren't they Muslim using them for prayer? Isn't that the idea? Well, well it, it is being used for prayer so where people can gather together and mingle and get to know, and then they can meet outside the prayer room, you know. So, But the point is that the, the, the organization, the organized body, is the Muslim Student Association. Now, would now this all be, where would they get their funding, for example, groups well, like that? Each each campus club have funding that come from the student contribution, so they are students of the uh, in, of the, like any, of the university like community. Club, sure. But it's not from outside sources, is oh, what I'm well, asking. Well, they have access to the mosque. They have support from the mosque. They right. have support from the mosque-related clubs, and it is it is from the Muslim Student Association. It's like the youth communist movement that the people then rise up to the main communist party, right. you know, right. or any such organization. Youth it's liberal like a movement, ground, yeah, yeah, youth liberal movement mm-hmm. to the main liberal party or right. youth com- youth conservative movement. So the MSA is the youth movement of the jihadis. We're at the at the quarter hour again. Got to go to another break. Did you want to say any more, anything else about this uh, upcoming Laura Logan? No, this thing? is more from okay. Laura Logan. This is though more from her, and she, of course, is the CBS News correspondent who uh, knows where of what she speaks because mm-hmm. she was right there on the front yeah. lines. We'll return right after this. They'll take a you know take your family to Arlington Cemetery and see the fresh graves that have been dug that are not that those soldiers haven't been put in the ground by Hamas and other people on the terrorist list. They've been put there by Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and Haqqani and the Pakistani government and all those people who want to destroy the United States, the West, and our way of life. It's almost like Groundhog Day in Afghanistan. That, you know, just as Charlie Wilson's war, right? Charlie Wilson said, (laughs) you know, if you turn your back on Afghanistan now, you're going to pay a price. And we didn't believe them. And then there was 9-11. And when I look at what's happening in Libya, there's a big song and dance about whether this was a terrorist attack or a protest. And you just want to scream, for God's sake. Are you kidding me?
Al-Qaeda changed the nature of journalism forever when they slit Daniel Pearl's throat on camera. They changed our currency. Journalists no longer had a value in um, reporting things and being witnesses. They became participants in the conflict and in the fight. If Osama bin Laden wanted to get his message out, he didn't need to sit down with 60 Minutes. He had any number of jihadi forums, his al-Sahab, his own magazine, and you know Arabic news channels to send his tapes to. And when you go into a situation like the one I was with, with that Taliban commander, you always got to think, what's his motivation for talking to me? Because that, in the end, is really going to be the thing that determines whether I walk away from that meeting or I don't, right? Because there's a, obviously a certain amount of risk involved in all of these decisions, but at the end of the day, if you really believe that someone is there for the reasons they say they are, then you've got a chance of coming away from it alive. And in fact, that particular commander I had met before, back in 2006 when he was a fighter, and I went and embedded with the Taliban in Ghazni, just south of uh, Kabul, less than a mile from a U.S. base, I was with like 300 Taliban fighters back in 2006, before we even admitted that the insurgency was back. And I say insurgency like that because the Taliban was a government in power, and they're fighting to get back in power. They don't see themselves as insurgents. It's a very important distinction. And, and for me, if you fail to identify the ideological component to this fight, if you fail to identify what your enemy is really fighting for, if you lie about who they really are, I don't see how you can possibly have the right strategy. What a powerful statement. Very. Yeah. Well, Laura Logan is a woman who was physically assaulted and raped, yeah. gang raped in, mm -hmm. in, in Tahrir Square. That's the Freedom Square. Just think about it, the irony. Yes. Uh, Tahrir Square is the Freedom Square in Cairo where every individual should be respected. And here was a white woman who was reporting on the Arab Spring, was gang raped. Mm -hmm. just, just amazing. Now, she pointed out that I think she tried to make the point, I think, in what she was saying there, that this isn't just a bunch of... Uh, protesters or disaffected people. All of this activity is being funded at the top somewhere by government of some nation somewhere or nations. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. I mean, these are all on the official record. Uh, we have a figure, it's an astronomical figure. We have a figure since the 1970s. Saudi Arabia has spent over $70 billion, wow. that's with a B, in spreading its message of Islamism. Wahhabism in support of the Muslim Brotherhood. Now that's one country. Aren't the Saudis really the ones who are responsible for 9-11? Fourteen of the hijackers on those four planes that went into the World Trade Center yes. were Saudi citizens. Yeah, so we went to Afghanistan instead. I never, <laughs> I never understood that, you know, and that was as soon as I realized that was going on, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm confused. Well, I mean, because we went into Afghanistan, because we went in hunting for Osama bin Laden uh, and to destroy his base and to destroy the Taliban who refused to hand over Osama bin Laden. But those are now all underneath the water. The yes. point is that this is a global jihad. If there is any critical point here, we embraced Saudi Arabia a long ago. That was in the 1920s. And this is the country or this is the culture, the most retrograde 
This is where this, Wahhabism comes from, exactly right? Exactly where Wahhabi, the most retrograde system of government yes. that is in full embrace by what would be supposedly the most progressive or most open democratic republic in the world, the United States. Yeah. This is the asymmetry, and and what do those people, that is the anti-theocrats in the Muslim world, how do they stand up and struggle against the theocrats? The analogy here would be. How do the anti-communists struggle against the communists if the communists are in full embrace by the Western powers, right. which is what it was, the Soviet Union in the detente years, until yeah. this crazy man, Ronald Reagan, came along and, and said, now, we, we have an evil empire, right? So the detente period, so what do the Sakharovs, I mean, these are the big names, the Solzhenitsyn, the Sharansky, all the people who were in the gulags, how do they struggle against the anti-communists yeah. when the United States and the Western powers are in full embrace? And, and that's what I call the closed loop. We, uh, we live in a memory hole. If you give me another mm-hmm. 90 seconds, you know, we live in a memory hole. The, the worst terrorist act in the history before 9-11 was plan, organize, the, the logistic prepared and executed from Canada and the people who were the victims were Canadian. That was the Air India right. bombing. Yes. And the Indian government and people who knew about it, in, like politicians like Ujjal Dosanjh, who later on became the premier of BC and, and a m- member of the cabinet in, in Ottawa, they were warning the Canadian politician and political parties, but the politicians and political parties, all of them, irrespective, conservatives, liberals, NDP, were going to those gurdwaras, that is the temple of the Sikhs, where these things were planned so that they would get their vote. And that's, we are repeating well, it. We I, are repeating our politician. It doesn't matter. In no, the city of I, London. I often joke that our leaders, they're not leaders, they're cheerleaders. They're boldly going where they think the majority of the bu- voting public want them to go. So if these communities have the numbers. Absolutely. And yeah. here, here, here you have a guy like Munir Al-Qasim yeah. being garlanded with metal. Who are we garlanding with metal? which is the NDP uh, member of parliament does in the city of London. Garland, Mr. Munir Al-Qasim with the medal, the Queen's Jubilee, is a guy who is sitting in full embrace of Louis Farah Khan, who is in full support of the jihadi movement worldwide, you know, who who we know of where he stands. And, and this is where we are as a country. So what does Rahil Raza or anyone, be, Rahil, Rahil was a fly on the wall at that briefing yes. with the RCMP. Yes. And you heard what Rahil said, mm-hmm. that the RCMP and the CSIS were far more concerned about the sensibilities of right. these imam who will not turn around and call them Islamophobes, yes. rather than concerned about the fact that there are these people in their own community and that they have to weed them out. Yes, exactly. Well, and it's interesting, too, with the people of the left in the West, they oppose the imaginary theocrats in the conservative party, for right. example. Right. Uh, meanwhile, they enable the real theocrats in the Muslim world. Absolutely. It's bizarre. Absolutely. And so we have the problem. We have the problem in, that is, this is a global problem, uh, but not the way Munir al-Qasim says it. Munir al-Qasim, when he talks about this is a global problem, he's trying to buck, buck the responsibility. Yeah. Because... N- 
over 90% of this problem of terrorism is a Muslim problem. That is, it is the terrorists are Muslim. They're Islamists. They're theocrats. This is not Roman Catholics or Japanese or Nepali or anybody else engaged in. Well, that, that, that's an excellent point to, to, to close off the show with. We've got about a minute because um, Tarek Fatah mentioned, he said, people should open their eyes. This is a war between Muslims and Islamists. The rest of the world is a side casualty. Is that an accurate appraisal? Well, the, the, the I got the impression the rest of the world was also a target, but not just a side casualty. No, the rest of the world is a target. I mean, I don't know yeah. what Tariq Fatah is talking about, but, but 9-11, the rest of the world was target, you know, mm -hmm. and, and this war is going on. London was target, Madrid was target, Kassab, uh, 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 Bali, Indonesia was target, Mumbai, Indi India was target, on and on. There are many, many, many targets have been and will continue to be. Uh, 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 but the point that, that, that is that, that this global jihad, which emanates from the Muslim world, run by theocrats, the problem for the West that's what I was heading at, is the asymmetry. This global jihad is the mentality of the 10th century, yes. the, the yeah. pre-modern age, where the West was a millennium ago. We are now in the 21st century, yes. and the West doesn't know how to deal with a problem that was and is a problem of the 10th century argumentation. Yes. So, you know, yeah. you have a complete asymmetry. The West doesn't know how to deal. The West wants to protect its own democratic values. Our politician, on the basis of protecting our own democratic values, want to embrace everybody. And so this is multiculturalism. They run into the mosque, believing that that's where the votes are. And so they give all the accolades to the imams. That's why we need groups like yours, Muslims Facing Tomorrow and Zudi Jasser's group, to have more prominence. So Precisely, maybe they, but, but they have to come and talk to us. Yes. But they don't, because they are, in a sense, being inhibited by their own sensibilities and yes. by their own ideology, and their own ideology is the ideology of multiculturalism. Ah, yes. <laughs> so there you go. The dreaded multiculturalism. And that's, I guess, <laughs> the note we're going to have to end this week's show on. Thank you once again, Salim, for joining Thanks, us. Salim. It's been very enlightening, and I'm sure we're going to have you back again to finish some of our previous conversations that never got <laughs> finished either. So, I guess, thank you, Mary Lou. We'll thank be off buddy. for another week, and join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do act right, think think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, every day will be... And now we're going to let Iran get nuclear weapons? Iran? Are you kidding me? You ever see the stock footage of them walking around their nuclear plant? Look on the walls over their shoulders and note the righty-tighty-lefty-loosey poster. <laughs> Christ, you know what's going to happen here. Netanyahu, who lost his brother at Entebbe, is going to go so far, and then he's going to put the big portobello over Iran. And guess what? Whether we like it or not, we're going to have to back his play. Now listen, uh, do I understand everything about the Jews? No, of course I don't. I'm not of the faith, and I sometimes wonder why did Israel choose to set up shop in the one place in the entire neighborhood that doesn't have oil four feet under the surface? <laughs> the Jews.